Today we continue a series that we've been in uh, for some time. We've been looking at the life of David. And uh, this is our summer series in which we're uh, taking time to look at the character of David, the character of God, uh, the people he encounters, the situations that he deals with, and in it all, looking that God would uh, shape us uh, through this text, through this story, that God would reshape the way we think and the ways that we engage in the world. And so today, as we continue, we're in 2 Samuel chapter 2. And uh, we're going to be doing a big section this week. Uh, uh, It's going to be chapters two through five, four chapters, uh, far more than we would try, I would try to read while we do this. So I'm going to be hitting highlights. I'd encourage you in the week ahead to take a half hour and read through this text. There is far more drama than I'm going to be able to get into today in the story of David uh, here in 2 Samuel 2 through 5. So um, David, let's catch up just a little bit from where we've been. David had been anointed the next king over Israel as a child. Uh, He was young. He was uh, out herding his family's uh, sheep. Uh, He was a shepherd. As the youngest child, it was kind of the low job on the totem pole. And um, uh, Samuel came to David's family. And he said, uh, you know, he's, he was there to find the next king of Israel. And he looked through all the older sons who were uh, healthier and bigger and older and uh, in, in many ways more accomplished. And Samuel said, no, the one's not here. And they called David in from uh, the fields. And Samuel said, this is the man. And David was anointed to be king over Israel. And yet for the next 15 years of his life, Saul, the current king, the first king over Israel, uh, he would remain in power. And David would, David would in seasons, uh, early in the, in the story, he worked under Saul and began to rise in the ranks and was respected by many people, both in the palace and throughout the nation of Israel. But in time, Saul became very fearful and jealous of David and eventually was trying to kill him. So David fled. And for a long time, David finds himself in this place of uh, waiting, uh, engaged and yet waiting. And you can go back and listen to more of those uh, podcast if you'd like to hear more about the early story of David. But at this point, as of last week, Saul has now died. He was in a battle uh, with the Philistines. He and his son, Jonathan, uh, whom was a very close friend of David's, um, uh, Saul has passed away. And so the question of now the transition of power comes into play. And I think most of us could acknowledge this, uh, change and transition uh, often bring some sort of chaos along with them. Have you ever found that in your life, that in major seasons of change or transition, uh, we find chaos begins to stir in the waters of our life, right? And for us, for me, it happens every single night uh, as we try to transition from family time to bedtime. Uh, if you've, if you have children, you know the kind of chaos that, uh, that comes in these times of transition. I love it. One of my daughters, uh, every night we have this, uh, seven minute cycle. You have to come and check on me again in seven minutes. And you go in and you check on her and love you, sleep good. And as you're about to close the door, she says, um, dad? And you look, and you can see the wheels turning. She's trying to think of any question or any conversation she can think, you know, um, Dad, so 
I was wondering, as she's trying to process, how can I prolong, right? This is the chaos that comes in transition in life. Uh, but it happens on much bigger scales in our lives. Uh, do, do you remember going off to college for the first time? I mean, an exciting, a beautiful transition in life, and yet the new decisions, the chaos that seems uh, to be intertwined. Uh, getting a new job or changing careers uh, is beautiful often, and yet challenging in its own ways. Or getting married. You remember that one? I, so um, when Sarah and I got married, uh, I had bought a, a house about a year before here in the Tri-Cities, and I had friends living here, and so naturally I kicked them all out. Sarah and I went on a honeymoon. We finally get home to our new house that we get to set up together. How exciting is this going to be? And the first morning, um, I didn't ask her if I could tell the story, but I think she's told it before. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Um, the first morning, she decided she's in kids' class. She'll never know until she listens to this tomorrow, and she'll know. Um, so uh, so the first morning, she thought, oh, this is going to be really special. I'm going to light the fire, and I'm going to make breakfast for him. Well, she didn't know that there's a damper in a fireplace that prevents uh, the airflow in either direction. And so I woke up that morning to the fire alarm blaring in our home, and I was like, oh, this is special. But that's the chaotic transition things that we experience in life, right? Um, so here we are in 2 Samuel chapter 2, uh, and change is on the horizon. Saul has died. What comes next in the story? Chapter 2, verse 1. In the course of time, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah? He asked. The Lord said, Go up. Uh, David asked, Where shall I go? To Hebron, the Lord answered. Uh, so he gathers up all his family and his possessions, and in 2 uh, verse 4, then the men of Judah came to Hebron, and there they anointed David king over the tribe of Judah. Okay, so two things in there. First of all, David inquired of the Lord. God, where do I go? What do I do next? Saul has passed. Uh, what is the next step that you desire of me? And we're going to talk more about this character trait in David. His desire to seek the Lord's will, his desire to inquire of the Lord uh, and, and to find his next steps in life. But I think this is a significant start to the text. Uh, he begins by asking God, what do I do? Where do I go? And the answer that came was, go to Judah, um, go to the town of Hebron in Judah, um, or go to the town of Hebron, and the men of Judah came, and they anointed him king. It sounds like the story's going really well, right? God told him, go here, he's anointed king, except uh, that uh, we begin to see uh, in Israel a division that will take place here in a couple more generations, uh, but we catch a little bit of foreshadowing of it here in our story today. You see, for three generations, Israel would remain one nation. Uh, for a brief period here, they will divide, and by the end of our text today, David will have drawn the nation of Israel back together. So for three generations, Saul's uh, reign, David's reign, and his son Solomon's reign, Israel will remain united under a king. Uh, yet you might remember, if you were here with us, that in the beginning, God told them, you don't want a king. It will not go well for you. And under these three men, things go relatively well uh, for the nation of Israel. Uh, but following Solomon's reign, things begin to crumble. And in fact, Israel will divide into Judah and Israel, two uh, nations, uh, one nation, and yet separated, uh, divided and polarized, and at times at war with each other. 
Uh, here in Israel's first transition from King Saul, their first king, to now King David, um, we see this foreshadowing of division that will take place. Um, Israel remained faithful to uh, the house of Saul. Ishbosheth is his son, and um, and Israel's going to remain faithful to the house of Saul. Well, David was just now anointed king over Judah, one of the tribes there in Israel. So in chapter 3, verse 1, it continues, uh, the war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul grew weaker. So not only do they unite under different kings, but Israel begins a war here. Uh, they begin to war against each other. Um, and, and they find themselves in a season while being attacked by the Philistines and having many other hostile nations and problems on their plate. They find themselves in a season of inner strife, of infighting, of a civil war taking place here in Israel uh, because of the transition of power from their first king Saul to either one of Saul's children, uh, or to David. Okay, so as the story continues here in chapter 3, uh, Abner, um, he's a powerful man in Israel. Remember, this is Saul's camp. Uh, sorry, there's going to be a lot of history and explanation, but that's okay. This is a fascinating and, and significant story in the life of Israel and in the in the in the scripture that we have here. Uh, so Abner, he's a powerful man in Saul's camp, uh, in, in the house of Saul, and he sought a treaty with David. He said, I'm gonna, I can bring Israel over to your side and we'll be one nation again under you, David. So in chapter three, verse 12, uh, Abner sent messengers on his behalf to say to David, uh, whose land is it? Is, is it? Make an agreement with me and I will, and I will help you bring all Israel over to you. Now, David had a commander in his army named Joab, and he was convinced that Abner uh, was, was setting them up, that he was lying to them and trying to accomplish his own pur- purposes and defeat David. Additionally, Joab had a beef with Abner, this guy who's trying to bring the two nations together. So in chapter 3, verse 26, Joab then left David and sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern at uh, Sirah, but David did not know it. Now, when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside to an inner chamber as if to speak with him privately, and there to avenge the blood of his brother Ashel. Joab stabbed him in the stomach, and he died. Have you ever seen in life, it happens in movies that we watch all the time, uh, that moment when uh, things could turn from strife and challenge to peace and hope, and yet betrayal is often the result. In our text today, uh, revenge uh, would win the day, at least this day, in the story of Israel and Judah, the houses of David and Saul. Well, David and a man named Abner uh, seek to bring the nation together to find new hope, new peace, a new way of life as a new nation under the rule of David. Um, Joab has a beef. He has uh, past experience. He seeks revenge and takes the life of Abner. What could have been hopeful and peaceful uh, now will further fuel the war 
and will result in far worse circumstances. I was thinking about this part of the text this last week and reminded of two stories that I'll be brief on, but but two stories that kind of parallel uh, either the hope for progress in this moment in the tale or um, the revenge and the war and the violence that could result. Um, The first is Martin Luther King Jr., and each year, we as a church uh, focus on him. So I'll be brief on this story, because you've heard part of it, or you'll get to in the coming year. Uh, but Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, sought new hope. He was pivotal in the um, uh, civil rights movement. And he sought new hope for a people that had been oppressed for a very long time. He was a pastor, a remarkable speaker, uh, had played beautiful and, and, and beautiful roles in our nation, and held such potential. And yet people entrenched in hate and in rage used violence to accomplish their purposes. And though Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. lost his life, the cause was not lost. His efforts went on to have a remarkable impact. But as I thought about this text today and the story of betrayal and revenge and assassination, instead of seeking ways of peace, I just found myself resonating on this story of a man hoping to bring peace, uh, bringing a beautiful message of unity and hope and potential to our nation and paying with his life for the work that he did. And then on the flip side of this story, um, a, a tale, a book that I've, I've mentioned before uh, by Desmond Tutu. And it's a book called No Future Without Forgiveness. And uh, South Africa experienced years of apartheid. And this was the oppression of the South African people uh, by Caucasian peoples, a minority oppressing the majority of people in that nation. And uh, Desmond Tutu and a group of, of uh, and a council came together. They were formed or commissioned with uh, the task of bringing healing to a nation that's coming off, uh, you know, the story of genocides, all sorts of atrocity, absolute um, uh, unfair conditions, injustice across the board. And so they're supposed to heal a nation, right? How in the world does that happen? Now, generally in the story of genocide and war and violence and fighting within a nation, um, a, a pardon is the answer, right? Those that were highest in the chain and making the decisions will be receive some sort of uh, punishment and consequence. Uh, often they would lose their lives for the things that they did. But for the majority of people uh, that were just complicit in the process, those people that uh, participated in it in whatever way, just a blanket pardon is given, right? You're relinquished of uh, whatever you did under the command of him who is has now been punished for what he did. Desmond Tutu and, and his commission had a different idea. Uh, they came to the conclusion that there's no future for this nation, no hope of unity outside of forgiveness. And so they set up the strangest, uh, most I mean, what an experiment. I mean, we're talking about healing a nation, the hope for the future of a nation. And they're like, uh, they set up this remarkable plan. Um, people who were complicit, people who served menial roles in the army and have done atrocious things in those roles would receive their pardon for their honesty, for telling their story, 
for admitting their complicity. And, and so you can imagine, if, if I were one of those people, I would be terrified to step into that room and to say that. And yet, that is the terms of my pardon. What plays out in the story of South Africa is uh, that the, the victims of these people, knowing who had murdered their father or their sister or whatever, showed up at these trials in which pardons would be given, and listened to the honest stories of these people admitting their complicity and their wrong and begging forgiveness of those that they had harmed. And and bonds begin to be formed. And relationships begin to be born of a tragic story and a time. Desmond Tutu uh, illustrates kind of this opposite side of the tale. Uh, in, in seasons of transition, when war and when violence seem logical and will often come to the forefront of our conversation, they chose forgiveness and peace and honesty and found in that remarkable hope. So as we turn back to our text um, uh, David is king over Judah. Uh, Ishbosheth, Saul's son, is ruling over Israel. Uh, there's been an assassination that peace would not go through, that not immediately would they be united as a nation. In chapter 4, then, uh, Israel is consumed with fear after Abner had died. He was high up in the command in the army of Israel. And so Israel is consumed with fear. What's going to happen to us? Uh, am I next to be assassinated? And so out of fear or some other motivations, we're not told in detail. Two men uh, that served under Ishbosheth entered his house and assassinated their own king. In his own bed, uh, he lost his life as two of his own men took it. And so they bring to David uh, um, the head of Ishbosheth uh, as like a trophy, right? And they brag to David, look, we killed the king that you're at war against, thinking they would be celebrated. But David mourns the loss, and, and the men are rewarded by losing their own lives uh, for what they have done. David calls Ishbosheth an innocent man in the text there. So we, we now have in our story uh, David, who's king over Judah, uh, fighting, infighting on both sides of this war, assassinations and terrible things happening in the Civil War. We have uh, betrayal uh, is running rampant in the text, and now Ishbosheth, the king of Israel, uh, the son of Saul, he is dead. In chapter 5, verse 1, we begin to conclude uh, this section of the story. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, we are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to David, to King David, David at Hebron, The king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. 
So at this point in our story, in our text, and like I said, we didn't get to read it all or cover everything that happens. I'd encourage you to, uh, if you'd like to, in the week to come. At the end of our text, finally, we see a kingdom come together. Uh, but did you catch in there? It was seven years of war and violence and infighting amongst this nation that it took for this resolution to finally come. A couple interesting statements were made in the text there. Uh, as Israel, that, that is who had been fighting against David in Judah, uh, as Israel comes to David, they say, we are your own flesh and blood. What a profound realization. Yet what an obvious one. Like, we are a people. Why have we been fighting so long? And, well, their realization and their conclusion here is probably born of fear of what will happen to them now that their king is dead and they don't have a ruler. Though it might be born of, fo- of fear, they finally come to the reality, to the conclusion that we are a people. Why will we fight any longer? And they said, this is what God said of you. You will shepherd my people, Israel. You know, this idea of shepherding is not one that is terribly familiar to us in our culture. Uh, Maybe some of us grew up on farms and understand these things a little bit better. Uh, But uh, David, his story has kind of begun to come full circle, right? Once the youngest child, humble, out in a field, uh, shepherding his family's herds, uh, his job was to take care of those animals, to protect them from wild animals, to find them green pastures that they could eat at, to find the sheep water to drink from. And now it comes full circle, and God has said of David, as he's finally anointed king, as he's finally uh, brought into covenant uh, relationship with both Israel and Judah, God has said, this will be my shepherd of my people. This will be the, the, the man who will uh, watch over my people, who will ensure they have the food and the water that they need, who will guide my people, who will lead them. This is David, the shepherd now of Israel. In the final part of chapter 5, uh, there's a significant event that I'm not going to read to us, but uh, the Philistines have come and they've uh, surrounded uh, Jerusalem. And uh, they are waging war against the Israelite people. And again in this text, it says, David inquired of the Lord, shall we go? And I love the bookends that this places on our text today. Uh, In the beginning, David says, all right, Saul is dead. What do I do now? God, where do I go? What do I do? At the end of this text that we're in today, again, we find David saying, God, what do I do in these circumstances? Um, you see, David's inquiry of the Lord is a primary trait, I think, that deserving of our attention. David chooses in the small things of life to the large things in life to seek God. Later on, even after all the terrible things that he'll do in his life, he'll be called a man after God's own heart. He'll be called the man who seeks God, right? Who desires to know God and is willing um, to submit his own will to God's. So, uh, as the book ends, uh, David says, or as the, as the story ends that we're in today, David says, so what should we do? How should we as a people engage in this moment?
Today, I want us to consider, as we look at the story of David and we ask, how does this shape my thinking? How does this shape my understanding of God? How does it shape the way I engage in this world? Um, David's decision to seek God on a personal level. I think this is an important challenge and a beautiful opportunity for each of us in the room today. Uh, Change does bring chaos. Uh, There's no question about that. But how much... uh, how much better to be on the side of God in that chaotic transition and change, right? Uh, may we be a people, this is my dream, uh, that seek the Lord in intentional ways. Now, I've long believed that we will hear the voice of God much more clearly in community than in isolation. I can only speak for myself in in this moment, but I know that when I pray for guidance, quite often my own thoughts and desires can come to the surface in the place of God's voice, and so that's something I have to keep in check in my life. But uh, I love the opportunity that in community we hear God's voice much more clearly, that in community, in conversation, in time of prayer and consideration, we will hear God's voice much more clearly as a people, as a community. And I'm struck by uh, this reality um, in our church as I was looking at this text and looking at this uh, story of David in the beginning, God, uh, where do I go? And in the end, God, how do we as a people engage? And I was thinking about a couple significant things happening amongst us right now. Um, There's two different committees right now in our church meeting for two different purposes, but I think there's a a link and a reason uh, they're happening uh, in a synchronized way. Uh, first of all, we have a committee meeting to look for facilities, to look at our next step. Do we purchase? Do we build? Do we lease? Uh, what, what does that next step look like? Um, and, and we're asking that question, God, where do we go? Right. This is a question of God. Where Where is next? Where would you like us to be? Where would you like us to go? And at at, at our first meeting, um, it kind of felt like a business meeting. I'm going to be honest, uh, and I probably conducted it that way to some extent. We had lawyers and real estate agents, general contractors, uh, and pastors all in this room together, and uh, we kicked things off. And we had a really good meeting, great conversation very in-depth. And by the end, uh, someone spoke up and said, um, hey, I can't do this if it's not bathed in prayer. And I'm like, oh, yeah, thank you so much for, for bringing that kind of passion to the table. You see, in, in, in anything we're doing in our individual lives, especially as a church, how important is it to inquire the Lord. And so I invite us all together to be praying about that very thing. Um, further, as I said earlier, we hear the voice of God more clearly in community. And so we are working on ways of getting uh, questionnaires and conversation out to everyone that we as a people can ask these hard questions of where we, where we will go. Uh, but where is not the only question. The second question David asked is, and what will we do? Uh, another committee has been meeting for a number of months now, um, uh, studying the subject of reconciliation. And reconciliation is a fancy word for uh, bringing back together 
into relationship uh, those that have been estranged. It's a story of bringing about healing and new hope where there has been tension or where there has been violence. Uh, and in fact, in one of the songs that we sang this morning, uh, I, I heard it, and it's not a complete definition, but it sounded so much like reconciliation to me. Uh, it says, the hopeless have found their home. The orphans now have a home. Uh, all that was lost is found, its place in you. God, right? Um, the homeless have found, uh, the hopeless have found their hope. The orphans have a home and the lost have found a place in you. And so as we study and we, as we explore, we're asking the question of God now, how do we engage as a people? Uh, and I think our location and the way we're going to serve and engage in reconciliation and new hope in a community are going to be very closely linked. But this is just one example and way in which I challenge us. Uh, we are a people like David who will inquire of the Lord, who will ask God of his will, and will seek to live in it. So here's what we have as we try to boil down four chapters in Scripture with all sorts of uh, violence, assassination, betrayal, uh, and yet God's hand uh, or, ordaining uh, and seeing um, his outcome to the end. How do we boil this all down and find something uh, first of all, we've talked in detail about David seeking the Lord's will. Secondly, um, uh, the, the thing that comes to me uh, is uh, hope will be found in peace and unity long before it will be found in violence, betrayal, and grudges, and, and the incredibly challenging things that we saw in our text today. Hope will be found in peace and in unity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for an opportunity to engage your word today. Uh, thank you for the story of David again, the things that we learn. And God, thank you that uh, you are faithful and uh, that your promise to David uh, was was fulfilled, and that that uh, the things that you said would be came to be. In each of our lives, God, I pray that you will um, give us uh, a passion for and the ability to hear your voice, that we might know more of your will, uh, that we would be a people that call out to you, asking for our guidance, what will we do, and where will we go, and how will we live. And Father, I pray that you will speak volumes into our life, that we can know more of you and your will. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'll close with these last few words. So may we seek God's will. May we be molded by the Almighty pliable enough to engage where he calls, that he, that we all might be agents of peace and of healing in this world. Friends, have a blessed week.